You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. I'm so thankful we get to gather together, and we're gathering together on Mother's Day. And so before we get started, I just want to say thank you uh, to the mothers who are watching this. I'm thankful that you love your children the way you do. I'm thankful that you're bringing them up the way you are to know the Lord. Um, God sees it, and he delights in you. Uh, Today, we continue in our year-long exposition of Colossians 3, and we're picking it back up in chapter 3, where we've been for the last few months. Um, And specifically, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. As you begin to go there now, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you so much um, that you've brought us together this morning. Um, God, even though we're not physically together, Father, all over the Metroplex today, Uh, members of this church are gathering to consider your ways, God. I pray that in our time together that um, we'd be encouraged, God, that we'd feel your presence, Father, and that we would uh, rest in the reality that we are loved, that we are chosen, and that we've been declared holy. We love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So if you'll remember, we've been exploring this idea in the second half of Colossians. We've been exploring this idea that we don't have to be slaves to our worst moments. No, we as Christians get to change. We're not identified by maybe the names we've given ourselves or that others have given us, right? Um, We are identified by a reality that God's spoken over us. And and so we've explored this idea of change by asking three questions. The first question we asked was, why does change matter? Uh, The second question we asked and and, and answered was, how how does change happen? And then the third question, which we're exploring and answering now, and we'll continue to answer today, is what does change look like? Colossians 3.12 will answer this question. So let's go to the verse now and let's read it. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Before I was a pastor, I was an attorney, and obviously, before being an attorney, you you go to law school. And so, I was in law school in Boston many years ago, and during my third year of law school, I was given a student bar card. And that student bar card basically declared that I, for all intents and purposes, was an attorney and was allowed to practice law. Um, Now, here's the thing. I I wasn't allowed to do that sort of based on my own merits because I hadn't I hadn't taken the bar exam, which is necessary to practice law, and, and I, hadn't, I didn't have a diploma, which was also necessary to practice law. Uh, no, instead, I sort of had to practice underneath the, um, you know, supervision of uh, the professors and also with the help of, of the institutions, both the law school and the courts. And so, um, in effect, what was happening is I got to practice law. Uh, and I got to practice the reality of being an attorney, not based on my own merits, but on somebody else's authority. And here's what that looked like for me. What that looked like for me is I was accepted into um, our criminal justice clinic, and I practiced 
during my third year uh, of law school as a public defender. Um, a public defender basically just represents people who can't afford an attorney. And so um, I walked into the courtroom very early on in the semester. We'd probably only met a couple times. And so again, I was not there as somebody who knew how to do this well. No, I uh, was very, very raw. And I walked in with long hair down to my shoulders, which meant uh, that I was not ready for anyone to respect me yet. At least it did in the courtroom in, in Dorchester, uh, Boston. So I walk in and there is a stack probably of 100 case files on a table. I pick up one of those case files. I'm ushered downstairs underneath this hundreds of years old courthouse uh, to what can only accurately be described as a dungeon and I meet my client. And there I tell her, hey, I'm a student attorney and I am gonna fight for you and I wanna represent you and I'm gonna stand next to you in any matters that, that are before you. And she looked at me and um, very rightly so uh, doubted my credentials and certainly was skeptic of my abilities. Here's what's important. Um, her skepticism of my abilities and indeed my own skepticism of my abilities did not change the truth, which was this, that I, for all intents and purposes, was an attorney, declared an attorney, allowed to practice law at that time. And here, here's what we're going to see today as we look at chapter 3, uh, verse 12. We're going to see that there is a reality that's been declared over us, and we out of that reality, get to practice putting on Christ. Again, it's important to remember that we don't practice. We don't practice based on sort of our own merits, based on uh, offering our own skills and gifts. No, we practice based out of a reality that's already been declared over us. So let's start to look. Let's start to look at the verses now. Where were we going to go? We're going to go right away. Uh, and just take the first chunk, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So we sort of look, we're going to look at that weird kind of parenthetical that Paul does there. You know, there's a question you have to ask, and the question is, why is Paul starting here? Why is Paul starting by saying uh, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved? He could have just said, put on kindness, put on gentleness, put on compassionate hearts, put on meekness, put on patience. He could have just said that, but he, he very um, deliberately stops and says, put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And, and he's doing that for two reasons. The first is that he knows, he knows as soon as he starts listing these, these character traits, we will likely not read them uh, through the lens of character traits that describe Christ, we will likely read them as commands that we have to fulfill or that we have to perform, right, in order to buy God's love. Um, this, in my mind, is one of the chief battles uh, that all Christians fa face. And it's, we, we have, we talk about it a lot here and we call it basically the performance narrative, right? Paul knows that we're going to see these, this list of commands and we're going to be forgetful about the economy of Christ's kingdom. And in Christ's kingdom, we're not loved for what we do. We're not loved um, for the way we're able to perform for God. No, we're loved because we are his children chosen before the foundations of the world. And look, um, 
if our default, it's it's strange because our default setting is to try to earn what we've already been declared, and 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 that would that's foolish. It would be as foolish as if um, I'd gotten my student bar card right that said you can practice law, you're an attorney, and I walked in that morning into the courtroom and said, Judge, give me a test so that I can prove that I'm an attorney, when I'd already had the card. It, it's strange. It's foolish to do that. The second reason. Um, that I think Paul draws us att our attention to this language of holy and beloved is because he wants to call back to our minds our salvation. He wants to um, call back to our minds, actually, our, maybe even more particularly, our baptism. Um, let me let me describe that to you. Here, here's the thing. When Paul says put on, when Paul says put on, um, that language, I think so often as Christians, we sort of hear language like that, right? And that's something we've heard before. And so we'll say, yeah, yeah put on and we'll sort of gloss over it. But I think we need to stop and let the strangeness of some of the language hit us. It's always helpful to do that because it sort of shocks us out of the, you know, malaise that can come with, with hearing the same things over and over again. And here what Paul does when he says put on, he's using a phrase that literally means uh, to clothe yourself or to cover yourself. And that language, uh, he uses it especially around the idea as, of baptism. So um, in Galatians 3.27, Paul says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Why, that begs the question of why Paul is calling us back to this idea of baptism. Why does he want the reader to, to think when we hear holy, beloved, uh, chosen ones. Why is he wanting us to hear baptism? Here's what he's saying. He's really actually telling us how to practice, how to practice putting on. What he's telling us is to practice putting on is to recall what we're already declared. Listen, to put on Christ-likeness, this is really important, is not accomplished by force of will. It's not accomplished by realigning our moral feelings uh, by exertion. No, it's to let what's been declared over you, the love of Christ, spill over into your life. And, and that's not to say it's not going to take effort, but this effort isn't, this effort isn't us striving against our nature. This effort is more about remembering what we've already been declared. Remember, remember this. Why do I say not striving against our nature? Because if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you no longer exist in your sin nature. Are there vestiges? Certainly. But you have been transformed, right? You are a new creation. You've been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And what Paul is doing is he's saying live out of this new creation that you are. Let's drill down into that idea a little bit because even that, I think, can still feel a bit uh, mysterious. So let, let, let's think about it this way. I think normally when we, when we hear something like that, what we're hearing is something along the lines of, um, I've got to be good, right? Like, so, okay, I need to be kind. I'm, it's right now I'm frustrated and I'm mad. I need to be kind. And there's this sort of, we, we exert like this, this force on our will to try to bear down and change our attitudes somehow, right? 
maybe it's um, same thing. Maybe with forgiveness, it's 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 like, oh, I'm wounded, but I know I'm supposed to forgive, so I'm going to offer sort of this fake thing or something like that, right? That the change, basically, in that sense, it doesn't become real. It becomes more of a a fight. I think you'd say a, a determination, uh, and that's why I use that language of exertion of the will. And what Paul is describing here is not that. This is super important. It's not that. Paul is is telling us to meditate, meditate on the reality that's being declared over us. And through that, right, we let that, the songs that are being sung over us by God in our heads, we let that um, um, influence and 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 transform how we how we live. So so think about it like this. Let's just take the language he uses, beloved. So so think about that. You're loved. And if if what you're doing is you're meditating on the idea that you're loved, I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm already accepted as I am, then in moments where maybe your character's called into question, in moments where Perhaps throughout the day, um, you're you're faced with your own uh, weaknesses. What you get to do is in the midst of that stop and go, I'm loved. I don't have to be anxious about what others think of me. I don't have to be a slave to comparisons. No, I'm accepted exactly who I am in Christ. I hope you see the difference there. I'm chosen by God. I'm chosen, right? I, 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 my life, I've been called to specific purposes um, to, to love God and enjoy him forever. And so think about that. If, if, if you're going into work and you start to feel that, man, that ambition or maybe even anxiety rise that says, man, I've got to make the most of this day. I need to make sure that I, that I get ahead. I got to make sure I get ahead. My life sort of depends on it in some sense. Then, then what, you know, what can happen in those moments is if you want to drift towards scheming and if you want to drift towards manipulation, instead you can say, wait, 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 my purpose is already secure. I am chosen in God. I can be real with people and I can rest in those purposes, which means I don't have to scheme and manipulate, which means I don't have to people please, which means I don't have to be fake. I can just be who I am. And that same thing comes through forgiveness as well. If, if what you understand deep in your heart is that you're already forgiven, then you don't offer cheap forgiveness. What you do is you, you, you're able to say, the whole state of my life is in one being forgiven. And so when somebody comes and, and who's hurt me, I can easily offer, I can easily offer what's already so true about me that I'm forgiven and I can offer that grace to others. Here, here's, here's maybe another way to think about it. In ancient Greece, there is a philosopher, his name is Plato, and in one of his works, it's called Phaedo, he presents this idea. It's a bit strange to our ears, but what he says is that all learning is remembering. Think about that. That's kind of strange. Right? All learning is remembering. And what Plato means is that um, his, his cosmology of the world, right, uh, uh, is basically this, that before you're born, you exist in this realm where with basically perfect ideas, perfect forms of things. He calls them forms. And his point is after you're born, you, be, you come to this material realm and what's buried deep inside you is this memory of perfect ideas. And so you, as you encounter the imperfect of this world and as you learn, right, what you're really doing is just remembering those back to that time before you were born where you existed as, I guess, like this disembodied soul with these other ideas. Now, listen, 
listen, um, I obviously don't believe this. I don't think you should believe that either. But I do wonder if practicing our Christ-likeness, I do wonder if it's reminiscent of this, if, it, if, if, it, if, that's, if it's analogous, right? Um, like, like, here's another way to think about it, right? Uh, have you ever rediscovered a skill that you thought you lost? You know, I used to be a drummer. I was a drummer for a long time and really thought maybe that was all I was ever going to do. Played in bands, you know, uh, for, for decades. Uh, and look, as life does and as things happen, you know, I, be, I became an attorney and then a pastor and had a family. And so, man, there, there are really long stretches where I never, you know, play percussion. Uh, but there are these times, and they're few and far between, where maybe things are slow around here. Again, that's very few and far between. And I'll jump back on the set in the worship center, and I'll start to play. And what happens is... Um, what happens is I sort of, I sort of rediscover rhythms that I thought I had lost. Um, there's this deep memory of music that sort of spills back into my limbs, and it's not like when I first got on the set and had no idea what I was doing. Is it choppy at first? Uh, does it feel a little strange? Yes, but as I play more, it sort of comes back to me. It comes back to me. Uh, if you'll allow me to mix metaphors, uh, maybe, maybe recalling. Uh, who we are in Christ and letting that spill out into our lives is a bit like putting on that weak old pair of jeans, you know, the one that sort of you don't have to strain to put on anymore. Uh, they just sort of fit perfectly. If we get more granular, um, I think it becomes even more clear. You know, Jamin said the other week, how we change is by, is our relationship with the Lord. Another way to say that is by communing with God. I think that when we are communing with the Lord, when we are uh, meditating, as I said earlier, about God, what happens is this veil sort of lifts, and we are able to recognize more easily the prompting of the Spirit. And so I think what this recalling and practicing putting on Christ, out of that recalling what it looks like, is that we're, we're I think what happens is we're caught in like fleshly patterns. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but maybe it's we're caught in sort of these default patterns. And what happens is we're prompted by the Spirit. And in that moment of prompting, we are offered the opportunity to put on Christ. And as we do, it might not fit perfectly at first, right? But as we do, what happens is it becomes natural. It feels almost natural to us. And, and the reason it feels natural is, remember, it's because it's who you already are. It's who you've already been declared. You've already made that transition from dark to light. Last week, um, we got the news, right, from, from uh, our government that we were going to start reopening or, or sort of lifting um, the restrictions of the shutdown. I don't, I don't know what that produced for you guys, but around here what it produced was, it was sort of a frenzy, I would say. It was a um, – it meant that there were many challenges to immediately look at, right? Uh, and so that, that prompted calls with, um, with our elders. That prompted calls with the staff. That prompted kind of seeking advice. And so it, it, it was a busy, busy week. And on one of those days, I needed to run out quickly and try to grab some food. And so I went to a, a local fast food eatery. And um, because I had not planned well, it was packed and I was in line. And I was waiting in line for at least 15 minutes. And I knew I was going to be late for a meeting. Knew I was going to be late for a meeting. So I pull out of the line frustrated, frustrated at myself, frustrated at the establishment. And I, I get on the street and I realize to get, to get back to this meeting in time, I need to, I need to bust a U-turn. Well, 
Listen, uh, it was a no U-turn intersection, but I did it anyways because I was justified in my own frustration. I was justified in my own anger, you might say, and I pulled the U-turn. And, and of course, right after that, uh, lights and sirens behind me and I, and I get pulled over. And, you know, I think um, if you know anything about me, then you know this. I am a person who struggles with authority. Let me put it that way. There is a deep vein of this that runs for generations in my family. Uh, they'll know what I'm talking about. And so I am not typically a kind person in these situations. And what was going through my head were things like, are you kidding me in the midst of a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, like, what is that ignoring? It's ignoring the fact that I'm, that I'm guilty, you know, obviously. But let me say this. So the fleshly pattern there is to, to mask the guilt and shame probably with a feeling of superiority, right? It's to be harsh or unkind. I think that's a, that's a way to say it. And so what I did, what, what happened is, is the cops walking up to my car, the spirit prompted me in that moment. The spirit prompted me in that moment. And I just felt an overwhelming sense of this, this idea of just like, be kind, be kind in this moment. So I roll down my window and I'm kind and I'm courteous to the officer and, and look like the outcome still wasn't good for me. But um, here, here's the truth. Like at the first hint of kindness, it might have been a bit of a, a, bit of a, a, a strange fit. But at that first hint of kindness, the dam of frustration broke. And all of a sudden I was able to offer a kindness as if I've always been kind in those moments, which I certainly hadn't. I was able to offer a kindness like it was natural and it was, was how I, I knew how to do it, right? And um, typically what would happen in a situation where I hadn't been kind in moments like that is I, I would kind of obsess over it for weeks after, right? The effect of not putting on Christ for me was one where I'd obsess and think I should have said this or done that or whatever. And instead what's happened is I, that, that interaction, uh, even, even though it, I still got a ticket, frankly, uh, I, it's not bothered me at all. It's not bothered me at all, you know? Um, I, I, I was guilty of it, and I was able to be kind and offer a picture of Christ to this police officer. And so praise God in that. And so, listen, I think, let me say it this way, I think, I think that experience of prompting and practicing, right, prompting by the Spirit and practicing who we already are, the, the reality that's already been declared over us. I think that's actually a really, really common experience. There might be other ways, but I think that's a really common experience. And again, I, I want to say, I, I don't think, I don't mean to say it's easy, but I do think as you practice, it does become easier. That's what I'll say. It becomes more natural. But let's acknowledge, let's acknowledge the difficulty, right? I think we, we should, we should acknowledge the difficulty. I think it actually helps us to understand a little bit more what these Christ-like traits actually are. There will be effort and difficulty, but that difficulty comes from having to contend with those default fleshly patterns that I just wanna call opposites. They're the opposites of the Christ-like traits we're gonna explore. Um, and, and, and the other point is this, I think sometimes you're gonna have to contend with the opposites in your own heart, but sometimes you're gonna have to contend with the opposites that others are acting out of. So let's talk about it a little bit more. I think it becomes more clear. Remember our verse, put on then as Christ's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What do we put on? First, we put on compassionate hearts. Second, we put on kindness, 
Third, we put on humility. Fourth, we put on meekness. And fifth, we put on patience. And before we dive in, I just want to, the, the simple and obvious question is, who, who is Paul describing? Like, who's he describing when he says compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? He's describing Jesus. And so what Paul is figuratively telling us to do is he's telling us not to act in certain ways. He's literally telling us to put on Christ. And that's why we're calling them Christ-like traits. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to strive to see Jesus in each of these traits, and we're going to describe their opposites, and it's going to bring clarity. Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. And when Paul says this, what he's really getting at, what commentators say, is he's really describing mercy. And so see Jesus as merciful as he lifts the face of the woman caught in adultery. See him as merciful as he lifts your face in kind, forgives you of your sins, and walks with you. Look, to be merciful is to love others, maybe to put them before yourself. To take time to see them is made in the image of God. And here's the thing, I think the default fleshly pattern, the opposite that we struggle with then, if it's to take, if, if, if to have a compassionate heart and to put on a compassionate heart means to slow down and see somebody is made in the image of God, then I think the opposite is going to be to treat people dismissively, to be impatient with them, right? Um, I think if you practice impatience and dismissiveness, then you will treat people as processes or problems to be solved. And God wants more for us than that. The second uh, Christ-like trait that Paul describes here is called is kindness. And so see Jesus as kind as he dines with those who have been pushed to the margins of society. See Jesus as kind as he comes to you in moments of hurt and pain and trial and he lifts your face and he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. Kindness is often practiced in the face of difficulty. It's often practiced in the face of unkindness by others. So, so what's that mean? I mean, the opposite, the opposite of, of kindness then would, could, could easily be called unkindness, but I think there's an element of courage in kindness. I think there's a subversive act in kindness because, like I said, often what it means is that you're unwilling to go along with the crowd when they're acting out of fear and when they're marginalizing others. And instead, what you do is you step into that space and you treat somebody as you would want to be treated. You treat somebody as if they've been made in the image of God. That's what we're called to as Christians. If you're practicing unkindness, you will practice bitterness. You know, you'll practice harshness. You'll practice a fear of man, I think. You'll practice cowardice. But God calls us to more than that. Thirdly, we have humility. See Jesus as humble as he descends to earth, not as a rich king at the center of the world, but as a lowly baby and then a carpenter in an unimportant town and a conquered province in a corner of the world. See Jesus' humility as he submits to his Father's will and goes to the cross. To be humble means that you recognize your position before God. Put simply, it means to understand that you're a creature and that you're not the creator. If you practice this reality, you'll be able to be honest about your weaknesses. You'll be able to be vulnerable with others. 
And so the opposite of humility is pride and self-sufficiency. And if you practice pride and self-sufficiency, you're going to cover your weaknesses. You're going to present yourself as invulnerable or maybe better than you are. And so you'll always be a slave to the eyes of the other, to those who are looking at you and judging you, or you'll be a slave to your own uncharitable um, assessments, right? You'll be your own, you'll, you'll be a slave to your own uncharitable judgments, but God is better for you. Next is meekness. Paul describes meekness. And meekness, the commentators say, is really more akin to like a gentleness. See, Jesus is meek as he deals gently with his disciples who constantly fumble and stumble. See him as meek as he stands before his accusers and does not lash out, but goes willingly to the cross. You know, in today's modern times, meekness is usually described with negative connotations as one who sort of goes along without fuss or fight or is really submissive to authority. But in my mind, I think it's maybe one of the most important, if there is such a thing, uh, Christ-like traits to put on. Um, Paul, when he says meekness, he's talking about being gentle with others, not being harsh with others. And you're able to do that because to be meek means to, to be patient and wait on the Lord. It, it means to obey God before you understand where he's taking you. Meekness is a Godward trust that allows us to remain calm and gentle in times of tribulation as God leads us. The opposite then, the opposite then with meekness would be frustration, impatience, it would sort of be, I think, I think it would be to demand that you get the last word, that you get your way. It would be boisterous, right? But God has more for us than that. And finally, we have patience. Patience here uh, is typically translated as long-suffering. See, Jesus is patient and long-suffering as he deals with us in our own wandering hearts. He clings to us, right? Nothing can separate us from his love. You know, I was reading a commentary on Calvin here, and this is how he described meekness. He said that meekness is to embrace each other indulgently and to forgive easily. Man, I love that language, and I love it so much, and it's had such an impact on me this week because the first thing I thought, I thought of Citizens Church. We are a church that embraces each other indulgently. You are a people and a church that's hard to walk away from because we cling tightly to each other in times of crises. And I just think you have proved yourself. You have proved yourself as patient with us and patient with each other as this year we have walked through one unexpected crisis after another. And it brings a absolute gratitude to my heart an absolute gratitude to my heart. Thank you, Citizens Church. I think the opposite then, the opposite of being long-suffering and clinging to one another, would, would really to, to, to treat others as expendable. Maybe, maybe it's perhaps to, to have relationships that are really surface level, right? Um, superficial, you might say. Uh, and that's because the deep ones, the deep relationships are difficult, and we know that. But God calls us to deep relationships of love with each other. So you can see, I think you can see why as you practice 
as you practice putting on the reality that's already been declared over to you, I think you can see why it's difficult because you're gonna bump up, right, against those opposites, those default fleshly patterns. You know, in my ticket example, you saw it. In my ticket example, to be kind in that moment meant I was bumping up against feelings of pride. It meant I was bumping up against feelings of superiority, which were honestly just there to mask feelings of shame and feelings of guilt, knowing that I had done something wrong and being embarrassed about it, right? Um, that, that is what makes it difficult. But, but I think what we have to see is that it's worth it. It's worth it. And, and as I think about why it's worth it, there's two questions that really pop in, into my mind. There's two questions that I think we have to confront. And the first is this. The first is this, is that do we really want this? Do we really want this change? Do you really want this change? You know, before you can start to describe whether the change is worth it or not, you have to know whether you actually want it. You have to know why you want it. And I can just hear in my mind, I can hear people say, you know, maybe this isn't very attractive. Maybe it's not very attractive, this change, to be compassionate and kind. It's certainly going to cost a lot. You know, Keller, Keller talks about if we act out of our Christlikeness. I remember he, he talked about a guy who told him, if I act out of my Christlikeness, I'm probably not going to be as successful in worldly terms at work as I would be if I didn't have to be like Christ. And Keller was like, that's probably right, because you're going to be involved in deep, committed relationships of love with people. And so I, I think that there's a way that this might not look attractive. It may not square with your ambitions. I, I can also hear maybe somebody say, wait a minute, you want me to be kind to others? You want me to be gentle with others? You want me to be meek and patient? But you don't know my pain. You don't know what I've walked through. To, to be kind and gentle, doesn't that mean that I'm ignoring the hurts in my life? I, I want you to hear something. I want you to hear something really clear. I'm, I might not know your ambitions, and I might not know your, your pain. But if you don't want this change, it means that you disagree with God about who he says you need to become. And, and if you disagree with God about who he says you need to become, I want you to know your life's going to end up even in even more pain because a life spent living like Christ, recalling who we've already been declared, that's, how, that's a life lived how we're meant to be. We are meant to exist in a relationship of love in Christ. And you will, you will be dashed upon the rocks of reality. You, you truly will if you try to exist and live your life in any other manner. And so I plead with you, brother, see who you've been declared by God and agree with them, with him and how you need to change. The second question that comes, and it's probably, it's, this is probably the more um, common question for the Christian is this, is that maybe you don't think you can change. Maybe you think, uh, maybe, maybe you don't see how you can become like this. And I understand this. I understand this. I really do. Uh, it can be hard as you look at your life. It can be hard to think that you can actually become a kind human being or a patient human being. But remember this, Christian, if you don't agree with God, that you th if you don't agree that you think you can become like this, then that means you are disagreeing with God about who he's already declared you to be. If you don't think you can become like this, then you are disagreeing with God about who he's already declared you to be. And listen, I know, I know that it might not feel this way, but you need to remember this is who you already are 
Listen, our feelings, we need to stop letting our feelings and circumstances dictate how we see God's truth, and we instead need to see God's truth, what he speaks over us. We need to view that in a way that helps us make sense of our emotions and helps us make sense of how we're looking at our lives, right? It kind of means flipping the default position there. And this last point that we're talking about as we answer these questions, here's, here's, here's what I mean when I say it's worth it. What I mean when I say it's worth it is that as you agree with God about who you need to become, and as you agree with God about who you already are, you get invited into the grandest story that's ever occurred, right? As you remember who you already are and you put on Christ, you image Christ to the world. You actually offer Christ to people. And through that, God is bringing his kingdom, right, on earth as it is in heaven. Relationships get mended. Peace flourishes. A slice of heaven sort of becomes real around you as you practice putting on Christ. You have been given that, that card, right? But your card doesn't say qualified. It says citizen, citizen of the kingdom, loved, chosen, holy, And you don't get to practice at being something that you aren't. You get to recall who you already are, and you get to let the love of God overflow into your life. And in doing so, God invites you into his rescue plan for the world. Citizen, live out who God has called you to be. God, thank you so much for today. Father, I just pray. I I pray thanks and gratitude um, that we take seriously, God, Um, your identifying remarks about who we are, Father. There is a reality you speak over us, and it is one that is so comforting. It's so gentle. It's so encouraging. And so, Father, I pray as we leave here today, we would let that reality overflow into our lives, and we would put on Christ, and we would offer you to the world. It's in your Son's name we pray these things by the power of the Spirit. Amen.